This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we go to God's word this morning and continue our study on joy, real joy in the midst of adversity, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have your word that directs our thinking, informs our thinking, that it is your word that provides us with the that which stabilizes our soul so that whatever we encounter in life, we can continue to remain relaxed, calm, and even in the midst of dire circumstances, we can have a an inexpressible joy that is produced in us, not because of our own capability, but because of the work of God the Holy Spirit within our soul. Fathers, we continue our study Today on joy, we pray that you would help us to see the mechanics of joy, how you produce joy in our life, and that we might experience this in more and more ways in a fuller sense as we grow towards spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. We have been studying in Colossians. Now, the theme of Colossians is on the sufficiency of Christ, as I say over and over again. When we finish Colossians, you'll never forget that, I hope. We are, we have a sufficient Savior and a sufficient salvation. That means that God, through the work of Christ on the cross, has supplied everything we need in order to be saved, in order to have a relationship with God. Uh, our sin has been paid for completely. Nothing is left, or there's nothing left for us to add to it. But beyond that, we get this new life when we are saved, and God has given us everything we need for that new life. But it's important for us to go through the growth process because only as we grow to spiritual maturity do we really begin to experience the fullness of the blessings that God has given us. I pointed out last time when we talk about this concept of joy, the verb that we frequently find with joy has to do with fulfillment. Jesus prayed that our joy might be full. That indicates a process. That indicates that you have you can experience this joy at a small measure, even as a immature, small baby believer. But that as we grow to maturity, that joy becomes richer, and it permeates more of our life. That joy becomes full. As I look at what the Scripture teaches about joy, it is not so much that we can manufacture it. It doesn't 
fit with other concepts of happiness and joy. It's produced by God the Holy Spirit, but I see that it is a culmination, that having the fullness of joy is a culmination of that growth process. I'll explain that a little more as we go through today, but you, we, any believer can experience that joy incrementally as we grow, but to fully experience it only comes when we become, when we are spiritually mature and we have all of our spiritual skills operational and as a normative pattern in, in our life. We always have to remember that whatever we are, apart from Christ, is not normal. Whatever we are apart from Christ is not normal. Because when we're born, we're spiritually dead. That's not how man, that's not how God created man to be at the beginning. That's not how Adam was created or Eve. They, when they sinned, something was lost. It is regained potentially at regeneration. But it is only through spiritual growth that we come to realize the fullness of all that God intended us to be as human beings so that most of us are less than human in some sense. Those who are not believers are significantly less than human in terms of how God originally designed us. It is only when we fully are uh, fully realize all that God has made us to be do we realize that full human potential as God uh, intended it when he created Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. Life is just subnormal. We're so used to it that we often think of things that are normal as really, but they're really subnormal when you look at them uh, from a biblical perspective. Now, as we've come into this study, I'm focusing on Paul's statement in, uh, in Colossians 124 that he rejoices in sharing the afflictions of Christ. Now, in Colossians 124, he sets this up where he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh. That's the idea of completion there, what is lacking in the uh, afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. And I've pointed out in the previous uh, two or three lessons that the three key words that we have here, the verb rejoice and the two nouns related to suffering and adversity, the noun pathema, which is on the right, which is the uh, original for the sufferings, which is also the word normally used for the sufferings of Christ as well. It's applied to both humans and to Christ. And then the word thlipsis, which is used there for the afflictions of Christ, which tell us that it's not related to his suffering for redemption. The, the redemptive sufferings of Christ are always described with the, uh, with the noun pathema. But his other sufferings, the adversity that he goes through in the life, the testing, temptation, living in a fallen world with fallen human beings, all of those other things not redemptive are described with the, with the noun thlipsis for uh, trouble, adversity, uh, tribulation, affliction, distress. And so what Paul is talking about here is, has to do with the non-redemptive suffering of Christ, and those are given to us as a pattern. How he handles that adversity is given to us as a pattern for how we are to face and handle adversity with the same joy, peace, and peace that he uh, demonstrated. 
Now, I want to review some things and pull some things together that I've taught the last two or three weeks so that we can uh, just uh, catch up and have everything in, in sort of a nutshell. And the first point is that we recognize that there are different levels and qualities of joy and happiness, different levels and qualities of joy and happiness. Scripture uses some different words, but joy, even the word for joy is used in different senses. And I've identified three as we go through life and as we look at the text. One has to do with the fleeting happiness or the pleasure of the moment. You know, something happens and we're real excited and those endorphins start moving around and we're just uplifted and feel great and it's, it's, uh, we're really happy about something in a more momentary sense. It may not be, I'm not talking about just instantaneous. It may last for an hour or so, but it's something that is uh, more immediate. Then there's a more enduring natural joy, uh, just a normal joy that any human being can experience based on a number of different things. You have some people who just because of their personality are naturally more optimistic and positive about life. There are some people that we know that uh, it's just uh, it's it's just uh, almost a natural way they're so happy at times. And that's not to be confused with any spiritual joy. I remember many, many, many years ago when I was a young pastor of a church uh, down near Galveston, I had invited one of my uh, seminary professors to come and speak at a missions conference. And Ron Blue was just one of these guys that was, uh, he had the energy of five people, and he was, uh, uh, he may have been diagnosed as ADHD in another ge- in his generation if they had known about it, but he was just just bounced all over the place, and he was always upbeat and excited, and it's just fun to be around somebody like that. And after a church, one of the usually uh, uh, door men in the congregation who wasn't always thrilled about uh, Bible teaching that just focused on content said, oh, it's so wonderful to see somebody with the joy of the Lord. He was really making a backsided uh, criticism of me. But what he, the failure that he made was that he was identifying a personality trait with a spiritual quality. And people have different personality traits. Some people are optimistic and upbeat, and some people are a little uh, more pessimistic, and they get discouraged a little more easily. But that just has to do with either this in nature, their personality, or something like that. And that is just a natural state that people are in. It can be based on positive mental attitudes. Some people are just oriented that way. It could be because they are just living what appears to be a long-term set of positive circumstances. Life just seems to go well for them, so they just always uh, seem to be uh, somewhat happy. Or it could just be because they're, they've got a personal focus that's just based on various human viewpoint techniques of, of uh, achievement and objectivity and stability in life. And that's all fine and good, but that's not what the Scripture talks about when it talks about the spiritual quality of joy, which is the focus of our study. This is the result, as Galatians 5 teaches, of the Holy Spirit who is producing certain character qualities in us that are distinct from personality or circumstances. And this has to do with our, um, a mental attitude that goes beyond 
just simple circumstances or even volition. This is something that's produced by the Holy Spirit in us, and it's not something we necessarily volitionally respond to. We, it's the result, I think, as I pointed out when we've looked at James 1, 2 through 4, when James starts off and he says, count it all joy. Now, he doesn't say necessarily be joyful, although there are other commands in Scripture to rejoice over things, and that goes beyond, I think, the spiritual uh, fruit of joy. It's talking about a specific instance of rejoice connected to a specific thing. But in James, we're to count it joy, which is a uh, uh, imperative mood verb there, indicating that we're to add up something. It's an accounting verb, a get on my, meaning to count things up or add things up. And so we look at the totality of our current life experiences, and you add it all up, no matter whether they seem to you to be positive or negative circumstances, and the sum total is it is joy. And then in the next verse he says, count it all joy because you know something. So the joy is the consequence of knowledge and knowing certain things to be true. And so as we learn the Word of God and we understand God's plan and God's purposes, then and we live on the basis of that reality, the result then is joy. And the more you live on the basis of the reality of God's Word, His promises, and His plans, the more joy we have. That's how it develops. So the more we are oriented to the Word of God, oriented to the plan of God, the more we are claiming the promises of God and living on the basis of those promises, then the more we will live with a fuller joy. So it is produced by God the Holy Spirit, and of course the Holy Spirit doesn't ever work apart from the Word of God. So the joy that we're talking about is this enduring kind of joy. Second thing that I've talked about is that spiritual joy is the joy produced by God, the Holy Spirit, as a result of the first two spiritual skills operating together. And that is confession, because when we're out of fellowship, God the Holy Spirit's not working to produce anything in our life other than that we turn back toward God and confess our sins. So confession is the means of recovery. And then the mandate in that precedes Galatians 5, 22 to 23, we're to walk by means of the Spirit. So that's the foundational basic level. Then I talked about joy as the result of ongoing spiritual growth. This is that continuation of walking by means of the Spirit. And Jesus used the term abiding in him in John 15, 1 through 11, which we covered last time where Jesus says at the conclusion of that, these things, that is the doctrines, the teaching that I've just given to you, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain or abide in you. So there's a connection. The joy is the result of abiding in the these things that Jesus has taught. So the more we abide or continue in the teaching of Christ, the doctrines related uh, that he has taught related to the spiritual life, then uh, we experience that joy. So he says it very clearly, the content, these things I've spoken to you, is what precedes or is the, 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 the foundation for the joy abiding and for the joy becoming full at the end of that verse. So the fourth point that I covered was that the kind of joy that Scripture promises is a robust joy, and it's independent of circumstances, emotions, or people. 
You may have a day where you wake up in the morning, you just have the blues, but you can still have joy in the midst of that because it is not an emotional joy that the Holy Spirit is producing in us. It is separate from that emotion. So we can have various emotions at one level, yet there is a foundation of joy in our soul. So it doesn't matter how the circumstances change or the people change or how our individual emotions flux, we can still have that same uh, joy. Fifth point I covered was that joy is then related also to a spiritual peace. Often these the terms are related together. It's the peace is the second fruit of the spirit. And so both are the result of the work of the spirit and our claiming, relying upon, living on the basis of God's promises, which is the faith, the rest of the real. And so the first three spiritual skills that I've taught are confession, walking by means of the Spirit, and then the faith, rest, drill. Faith, rest, drill always works in tandem with the next two spiritual skills, which are grace orientation and doctrinal orientation, which both relate to understanding God's word and the grace of God. Now, in terms of the faith rest drill, I looked at one promise last week, Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And I pointed out that that means that it's focused on God and that our mentality is defined by what the word of God says so that we have peace. Those whose mind is stayed on thee, it's focused on the word because we trust in thee, trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength, or he's an everlasting rock. So under the sixth point, where I was when we sort of finished up last time, joy is also the result of an orientation to grace. As we come to understand that we don't merit God's favor, we don't have to be focused on trying to always gain God's blessing or make sure everything's uh, we're doing is right before God. We're not working toward uh, gaining God's approval all the time. We can just relax in Christ's finished work. Then that is an orientation to grace, and so that is critical to understanding joy. So joy is the result of orientation to grace, first at salvation, then subsequently in terms of spiritual growth. Now this comes out of our passage where I finished last time a little bit, and that's in Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 1 and following. So let's just turn in your Bibles, therefore, to Romans chapter 5, and let's just think through what Paul says here. And the, I want you to pay attention to some of the vocabulary. It's not always as clear in the English, but it is clear in the Greek, and there are certain uh, words that are similar to what we have over in uh, Colossians 1.24. Paul has just finished two chapters focusing on God's plan of redemption or justification. The theme of chapter 4 is how we are righteous before God. It is a free gift given uh, just as Abraham was justified before God by his faith, so we're justified. The result of that is that there is peace. So Paul moves, transitions to the next uh, level of his development in Romans, and he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, I think it can be translated and understood as a causal participle there, because we have now been justified by faith, we have, present tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you see, I've underlined rejoice in the next verse. In verse 2, we have the phrase, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and rejoice. Now, those two verbs, we have peace. We have is the verb there. Peace is the object of the verb, but they should be taken together. We have peace and we rejoice are you two main verbs in, in these two verses. So what Paul's talking about in verses 1 and following are we have peace and we have we rejoice. That's what he's talking about. They're connected together by, that, uh, uh, by the conjunction and. So he's tying peace with rejoice. Now, it's translated rejoice in, your, um, in King James or New King James. In New American Standard, I think it says, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And that's because the verb here is not the same verb we've been looking at uh, in, in other passages of the noun kara. It's the verb here, kalkaomai, uh, which is a little broader term, and it's got a little more punch to it. It's not just that we rejoice, it's that we exalt, where it brings in almost a level of enthusiasm or excitement to it that there is something beyond just Joy, it is something that is, that is more exciting than that, a little more, uh, enthusiastic than that. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, if you, if you notice in the next verse, verse three, I've also under, underlined the word glory. In five three, Paul says, and not only that, but we also glory. That's the same verb. In English, they translate it two different ways. You know, I always have a problem with that because if you're reading it in English, you don't catch the connection that Paul's making here between the statement that we exult in hope of the glory of God, and not only that, but we also exult in tribulations. So there's two things that are going on here in relation to this idea of exalting in something, glorifying or boasting in something, and that is the idea of, of this uh, an enthusiastic joy in relation to the glory of God and also and that helps us to understand how that affects our tribulations. And the word for tribulation here is the word that we've seen over in uh, Colossians one twenty four, which is thlepsis, which should be translated, best translation is just adversity. Use the word tribulation, all of a sudden people think, oh, the tribulation. Now, that is talking about the tribulation. It's talking about the day-to-day adversity, negative circumstances that we encounter on, on a day-to-day basis. And note what, what it, Paul says here. Not only that, but we also exalt, we also express joy in adversities. And it's stated as an indicative reality. And then you have the verb knowing. And that's the Greek word oida. It's a perfect participle. Now, the grammar is so important to catch these nuances. A perfect participle, perfect tense, indicates completed action. So he, he is saying we have come to know something, the present results of a completed past action. So the reason we're able to exalt, the reason you're able to have joy is because we have come to know something. Same thing that James says over in James 1, 2, and 3. It's on the basis of knowledge. There is a set of facts. There's information. There's truth that we have to make part of our soul, part of our thinking, part of the fabric of the way we respond and react to things in life that 
is the cause of our ability to have joy. It's not something that we just go out and be joyful. It's on the basis of knowing something. So it's a, an adverbial uh, participle of cause and should be translated something like, not only that, but we also rejoice or we uh, exult in adversities because we know that adversity produces endurance or perseverance. It's adversity that the only way you learn to hang in there when things are tough is to hang in there when things are tough. If every time life gets a little difficult and we have a pity party and we go whine about it, then you, you're not, you don't learn the lesson. I don't learn the lesson. We just keep learning to fail. And the more we learn to fail, the more we fail and the more we learn to fail and that becomes our habit pattern. And we have to take the mental self-discipline, say, no, I'm going to apply doctrine here and that means I need to do this. It's like learning how to do anything new. You have to stop and think about it. It's not going to come easily. It's not going to come naturally. You have to stop and think about it. We do so many things in life out of just sort of an automatic response because it's something, it's learned behavior that's become very comfortable to us. I don't know how many of you all have ever lived somewhere for many, many, many years and then move to a completely uh, different geographical area, someplace you've never really been before, and uh, then you start driving around. I noticed this when we moved to Connecticut some, uh, what was it, 13 years ago. And uh, how many times you drive around Houston? I've grown up in Houston. I learned how to drive on the freeways in Houston. I can, uh, I can drive from my house to my dad's house and get there and say, I don't even remember the drive. You know, my, I've got one part of my mind focused on driving and another part's thinking about whatever I'm thinking about or listening to the radio, but it's so automatic. I'm going to drive downtown or anywhere around town. I don't even think about it. I just know it so well. And many of you are probably the same way. But when I went to Connecticut, I'd be driving places and you'd stop and you sort of put your mind, part of your mind over onto something else. Next thing you know, you're 20 miles down the road. And you think, wait a minute, I missed my turn. Where am I? You just sort of come out of that reverie and you're, just, you're lost. Well, you ha I had to recognize that when I was driving until I really knew the area, I had to stop and concentrate more on how I was getting to where I was going and making sure I made all the right turns and got the right places and I didn't just stop and uh, concentrate on uh, on something else. And that's what happens whenever we learn something new. If you learn uh, a new job, if you learn, uh, you go to school, you're learning to do uh, a new skill, a new technique, you have to really think about it and think about the individual components of the uh, activity until it becomes part of you. And that's what we refer to when we talk about the mechanics of any particular skill. And you think about this if you, uh, if you th are learning a musical instrument, if you're playing a sport, if you're involved in dance, anything like that. You break down the activity into specific components, and then you focus on mastering each one of those stages or steps and then once you get that down, then you begin to put it together, and eventually it becomes something that is of, of second nature to you. Well, that's how we master any skill, and the same thing is true about spiritual skills. We have to stop and think about it. We can't just go with the normative uh, sort of uh, knee-jerk reaction that comes out of our soul because that's the default position of the sin nature. We have to relearn. We have to rethink 
uh, how we respond and react to life situations so that we are applying God's word, so that we have to learn not to grouse about adversity, but how to exult in adversity. And this comes on the basis of knowing something and truly knowing it. This is a, this is a different word for knowledge than what you have in James, James 1, 2 through 4. James uses gnosko because it has a different nuance of coming to know something, whereas oida here probably emphasizes having already come to a full knowledge or understanding of this. So they emphasize different aspects of the, of the way we learn something and the way we uh, come to know something. So we are able to exalt in our adversities because we know that this is how God has designed life in terms of the spiritual life. The only way that you can learn to see the grace of God and the power of God in your life is to depend upon him in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so it's in that process that God the Holy Spirit works to develop joy in our souls. So from this we see, as we go through into the next couple of verses in Romans 5, that joy and peace are related to our personal sense of destiny. See, we, if you think through the, um, the basic spiritual skills, confession, walking by the Spirit, faith rest, drill, doctrine, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, then the next stage is uh, having a personal sense of our eternal destiny. Not a destiny in time. We don't know what that is. But you know what your destiny is spiritually. It is to spend eternity with God. We are going to be uh, raptured. When Jesus Christ returns in the air for the church, then we are evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. The result of that is we are going to be given uh, delegated certain responsibilities and privileges that will be part of how we rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom and then on into eternity. That's our hope. It is from the Greek word elpis, which indicates not just an optimistic wish, like we keep hoping it will rain, We hope that somehow that tropical storm over New Orleans will bump this way a little bit and drop about six inches of rain on us, but that's not going to happen. That's not the kind of hope that Scripture talks about. Scripture talks about hope as a confident expectation, a certain reality that will come to pass in the future. There's no sense of contingency to it. It is a certainty. So in Romans 4 and 5, as Paul goes on, he says that tribulation produces endurance and endurance character. You don't get character if you don't start with endurance and and exalting in adversity. I didn't say you don't get to be a character. It's (laughs) character. Endurance produces character. Those are, that, that relates to the fruit of the Spirit. These are the character qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ. So character then produces hope. Hope is the result of a process of growth, learning to exult in tribulation, learning to uh, endure, to move forward under and within that adversity, not getting rid of it, but staying in there, that produces character, character produces hope. And then verse 5 states that now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
the Holy Spirit is given to every believer at the instant that you believe in Jesus Christ. There's two aspects to the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in the life of every believer. The first is called indwelling. Every believer in the church age is indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. And the second, and that never changes. It doesn't increase or decrease. You don't lose it. You don't reacquire it. That relates only to what we refer to as being filled by means of the Spirit, which is related to abiding in Christ and is related to uh, walking by uh, walking by the Spirit. It is related to fellowship. So here we're not talking about something related to fellowship, but something that was given to us at the instant of salvation as God the Holy Spirit is the manifestation, one of the manifestations of God's love for us in the spiritual life. The phrase love of God could be translated God's love for us or our love for God. The context here is talking about God's love for us and what he has, uh, what he has provided for us. And because the next few verses continue to explain uh, his demonstration of his love, for example, in Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the focus here is on God's love directed towards us, which is then uh, made real to us by God the Holy Spirit in the instant of, of our salvation. So the point I've made here is that joy is related to a personal sense of our eternal destiny. That's what we see here in terms of hope and the significance of that word in this verse. There's another verse coming from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus ties this to our personal sense of destiny as well. He says, blessed are you. Now, the word blessing in Scripture isn't quite equated to happiness, but it is. it overlaps. It, it, the, the blessing of God upon us uh, has to do with the, the spiritual benefits of his grace toward us and especially what we experience when we are applying God's word in the midst of adversity. So the adversity here has to do with opposition based on our uh, our belief in Christ. And in F- Matthew 5:11 Jesus said, "Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, when you are uh being uh, abused when you are being rejected, when someone is being antagonistic to you because of your belief in Jesus Christ, because of your stand for the truth of God's word. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. See, not just for other things in life, but specifically related to your belief in Jesus Christ, specifically related to the fact that you're a Christian. And in response to that, Jesus says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. So he uses two different words here. And uh, the, the first word has to do with joy in terms of that stability that I've talked about uh, that comes as a result of the Spirit. And then be exceedingly glad brings in an emotional element to it, that, that we can have an, this, an, an emotional uplift even in the midst of opposition, it's not just that, that foundation of joy, but there's a positiveness that is also there as well. So Jesus says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And so all of a sudden he shifts. He said, why do you rejoice and be happy? 
because your reward in heaven is great, and you know that. You have your, your, your thinking, your focus on the end game, on where things are headed, not in this life but in the next life, what God is doing in preparing us for eternity. And so we can focus on that, and that makes the current uh, adversity that we face uh, easier to bear, and it enables us to have real joy in the midst of negative circumstances. So from this we see under my seventh point is that joy then is related to understanding the plan and the purpose of God. It's related to understanding the plan and the purpose of God. Now the first thing we need to point out is that only in a broad sense do we understand the plan of God. We understand how God works in our life today and where he's taking us, but you don't know what God's plan is for you tomorrow or this afternoon. Neither do I. So we understand the overall plan of God and where he's going to take things, but we don't understand and we're not aware of or informed about the specifics in terms of the next few hours, days, weeks, or years. Now, the basis for this is a, one of our favorite, uh, book, uh, favorite verses, but before we get there, I want to lay down just a review of these basic spiritual skills. The five foundational spiritual skills are laid down here. John calls them uh, related to spiritual childhood, the technon in 1 John. Uh, confession of sin, uh, being filled by means of the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, the faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. This is the foundation. Now, to go to the next level of spiritual maturity in terms of spiritual adolescence, which John refers to as the neoniscoi or the, or the young man, uh, believer, the adolescent believer in 1 John 2.13, we have this understanding of our personal sense of uh, eternal destiny. We know where God is taking us. This is the process of spiritual growth as we master foundational skills and then go to intermediate skills and then ultimately to the mature skills related to uh, our focus on God. This involves a personal love for God, which we only come to know fully as a result of understanding his word and knowing him. Then we have, as a result of our love for God, we're able then to love others. Uh, I call it impersonal love, not because it's somehow not involved with personal connection, but because you don't have to know the person. It doesn't presuppose a personal relationship. You can show this love to somebody you don't know, the cashier at the grocery store, uh, the person who cut you off in traffic, you know, any number of things. Like, you don't know them. You have no personal connection to them, but you deal with them on the basis of love. And then our occupation with Christ, these three all work together. The result of getting all of these in place, then, is our happiness, our joy is full. That's sharing the happiness, the joy of Christ. So it comes to a fullness there. It's not that we can't experience that at smaller measures incrementally as we're maturing, but it only comes to its fullness as we uh, put all these other skills into practice in a normative sense in our life. Now, in terms of understanding the plan of God, we do have a promise to claim, one that you all know, Romans 8, 28. But we have to look at this within the context. Uh, Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, there's a couple of things about the translation of this verse that we need to be aware of. Uh, First thing is that the the opening statement in verse 28, again, takes us to the whole principle of knowledge. Jesus says, "These, these things I have taught you, as we read in Romans chapter 5, because we know certain things, uh, James 1, uh, 2 and 3, because we know certain things here, and we know. And this time, again, Paul uses the perfect tense of oida, indicating something we have come to know and emphasizing the present reality of something we've learned in the past, something we've come to know fully in the past, and is a present reality in our life. We know this principle that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, I want you to notice something in this text. We have to be sure we look at the context. When we read this, it looks as if Paul is saying that the all things that work together for good only work together for a group that loves God, to those who love God. But the context tells us who are those who love God. Is this talking about those who have reached a level of spiritual maturity, who have a mature love for God, or is this talking about every believer? There is an appositional phrase that comes after those who love God. To explain it, context is very clear. The appositional phrase says that those who love God are those who are called according to his purpose. Well, who are those who are called according to his purpose? So what we see in the first point is that those who love God are the same group as those who are called according to his purpose. Now, the called are defined again in verses 29 to 30. And in verse uh, 29 we read, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Then we go to verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called. Okay, that's the same group. Those whom he called, these he justified. So the called equal all those who are justified. Those he justified, these he also glorified. So you have the same set of people here. Those who are glorified, which is every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are those who are justified, which is every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every person who is justified are those who are called. Those who are called equal those who love God. See, we're looking at a basic definition of those who love God here, not those who have come to love him in a mature way, but those who love him at the basic way, Jesus said, those who love me keep my commandments. What's the first basic commandment? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the starting point. That is a, you're starting to love God at that point because you're recognizing that God has given you everything for salvation. And so that's the starting point. So textually, in terms of of the grammar, those who love God equal... Those who are called, those who are called equal those who are justified and those who are glorified. Therefore, those who love God 
are the same group as those who are justified and those who will be glorified. It's not a subset of Christians. It's everyone who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the issue here isn't what we do to make things work together for good. It is what God does. God is the one who oversees all the details in human history, and he's the one who works all things together for good in an absolute sense. Now, there's another critical thing to think through in terms of the translation of this verse, and that has to do with the structure of this phrase, all things work together for good. In the Greek, the phrase all things translates a verb form, I mean an an adjective form, literally it's panta. Well, panta can either be an accusative or it can be a nominative. For those of you who are grammatically challenged, which is probably most of us, uh, accusative means that it's the object of the verb. Something works all things together for good. Uh, subject means that all things is what performs the action of the verb. Now, the problem with saying that all things perform the action of the verb is that all things tends to be uh, somewhat, uh, somewhat impersonal. The verb here is synergeo. It's a present active indicative, but the important thing about it is it's a third-person singular that's translated either he works or it works. If all things is the, is the subject, then you would translate it, it would be like it works, the all things are doing something. And this is often understood by a lot of people who quote this, that... Um, that God is really the one working behind the scenes, but uh, the, the way it's translated, it's understood that the, the all things here um, uh, are, come together to ultimately produce something that is good. It implies God's sovereignty working behind the scenes, but it's not uh, emphasizing it. So the translation can take it as the subject of the verb or it can take it as the object of the verb, which I think is the best way to translate this, that it is, uh, it would then be translated, he works all things together for good. And the emphasis there would be on he, which is embedded within the verb, the third person singular, and that he then would be a reference Uh, to God, that he is the one working all things together for good. Now, that makes sense as the translation because as you read down into verses 29 through 30, there's a series, a chain of four verbs. Each verb is repeated again, so it's actually eight verbs in the text. Uh, Those who he called, he, uh, those who he foreknew, he predestined, those whom he predestined, he He called those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. And in each of those cases, we have a third-person singular verb. So each of those is translated, he did something, he called, he glorified, he justified, he uh, predestined. So all of those are translated that way. So contextually, just in terms of how the, the, the section runs, it would be better to understand uh, the verb in Romans 8.28, sunergeo, to be translated he rather than it. So the text then would read, we, we have come to know 
that he works all things together for good. Now, there are a couple of ancient manuscripts where the a scribe at some point or another decided that there was a, he thought that was a little bit too ambiguous. He wanted to make sure people would realize that it was talking about God, so he inserted God into the text. There are a couple of, um, of translations that insert God into the text there and, and would translate it. We know that God works all things together for good, but the word God or theos does not appear in the vast majority of, uh, of, uh, of manuscripts, neither does it appear in, in all of the oldest manuscripts. There's only a couple of old ones that have this, this, uh, got the term theos inserted, and that would, can be explained as just clarification. So the best way to translate this verse would be thus. And we have come to know that he, that is God, works all things together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So to have joy, we have to be oriented to the plan and purpose of God. That means we understand that God oversees everything. So no matter what we're facing, what adversity, what difficulty, whatever the flipsis may be in our life, God is overseeing everything so that when we get through our life, we look back and we see how God used everything to pull together something that was glorifying to him and which was good in an absolute sense. It doesn't say everything is good, but that God works to produce good out of things that are not as well as things that are. And let's see one example of this in 2 Corinthians 1.3. I just want to wrap up this section of our study. One way in which this works together for good is described by Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.3. He begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he, he brings out one aspect of God's character. He is the Father of mercies, and he is the God of all comfort. Now, the two key words that run through this section are the words comfort, which is either a translation of the verb form parakaleo or the noun form, or the word for tribulation or trouble throughout this is, is either the noun or verb form of thlipsis. Uh, so he's talking about how we face, one of the reasons we face difficulty and adversity in life. He says God is the one who comforts us in all of our adversities. We have to learn to be comforted by God. That occurs through his word and through the Holy Spirit. If you're not applying the promises of God to the adversity, then you're not learning to be encouraged and strengthened. Those are some of the meanings in the word uh, parakaleo, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be comforted. If you're not learning to be comforted by God's word, then you're still at square one. God's word, as you learn to be comforted or strengthened in, in difficult times by God's word, then... Paul goes on to say he's the one who comforts us in all of our adversities that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. Again, it's the same word, adversity. So one of the things God is doing when he takes us through difficult times is teaching us to not be so self-centered and to put our focus on him and let God comfort us so that later on when we are with friends, family, others around us who go through tough times, we're able to communicate to them on the basis of God's word 
and our experience of God's comfort, and therefore we are able to serve God in that capacity and minister to others. So Paul says he comforts us in all tribulation for the purpose that we're able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Then he goes on to explain this. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, as we continue in those same sufferings, as Paul talks about in Colossians 1.24, our consolation or our comfort, it's the same word, our comfort also abounds to others through Christ. And then verse 6, he says, now if we are afflicted, if we go through tribulations or adversities, it's for your consolation, your encouragement, your strengthening, Paul says, making it very personal. He says, if I'm going through adversity, it's for your benefit. That's the same thing he's saying over in Colossians 1.24, is that, that so that he can be more effective in his ministry and communication of God's grace to those to whom he is ministering. He says, if we are afflicted, if we go through adversity, it's for your strengthening, your comfort, and salvation. That's phase two, your sanctification, your ongoing spiritual growth, which is effective for enduring. There's that word again, hupomene, to endure. You have to endure in order to produce character and hope. Enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer, or if we are comforted, it is for your uh, consolation and salvation and our hope. There's a third word again. Our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers, our partners of the suffering, so also we will partake of the comfort. So the purpose, the focus of dealing with adversity is to teach us to rely upon God's grace, rely upon God's provision in terms of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And then as we do that, the Spirit of God strengthens our soul, producing uh, perseverance, endurance, the character of Christ, all of these things in our lives with the long-term result that our joy increases even in the midst of difficult times. It's all grounded on just the basic concept of walking by the Spirit, applying the Word of God, and the Spirit produces that joy in us with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your Word, to come to understand the principles and dynamics of spiritual growth related to adversity and testing and related to the fact that it is only as we go through those times of difficulty, opposition, that we learn to trust you and we see you work in our lives. We see you uh, fulfill the promises that you have made to us. And as a result, God, the Holy Spirit, strengthens our soul, edifies us, builds us up, uh, builds confidence in us, and we come to learn to focus on our future destiny and that hope is realized in our souls. And as that develops... So does joy. Father, we pray for anyone here who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this time to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ had you in mind when he died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins and his omniscience. He knew every sin that would be committed by every, every person in all of history. And he died for your sins. He paid for your sins 
so that that would not be an issue between you and God anymore. The atonement was complete. Now, Father, we pray that as we go throughout our day and this week that you will remind us of the principles we study today, that God the Holy Spirit would take these things and make them real to us and that we would uh, begin to focus more and concentrate more on our application of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.